were to start in the beginning. I'm, you know, I'm really curious as to, uh, I mean, how you came across this path. I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but maybe, um, the, and maybe the the interaction. So maybe what what inspired you to take robes in the first place? Maybe let's start there. So. I came to UC Santa Cruz in 1979 and wandered into a class on religions of India that Jack Engler was teaching. I was 17 years old, and I remember sitting in Cowell College listening to the lecture, and the first week was really boring because he was talking about, or the first few days was boring because he was talking about history. And then he moved from history to the kind of guts of what it was about. And I remember feeling like somebody put a, a match on a, on, a, on a bonfire that had been doused with kerosene. So even in a lecture hall, in a classroom with other college students, there was a sense of tremendous resonance with the teachings. So within a very short time, I really had a feeling of there was something about this that I knew was going to be central to my life. And then after a month of being in that class, I had a vision of being a nun, wandering around the, the, the countryside. And that vision kept coming back to me for the nine years or so it took before I actually ended up in the monastery. And what I, what I didn't know, Jason, was is that month that that vision took place was the same month that the nuns first had their eight precept ordination in the monasteries in England. It was October 1979. And I didn't learn that until, what, 10, 12 years later when I got to the monastery and got to know the history. So, but I think probably what's a really relevant question is, is, is that, you know, I was practicing, as everybody here is practicing in a lay context, what was the impetus to ordain? And I think the impetus for me to ordain came because I had um, faith in the teachings and I had a faith that the Buddha's instruction that the, the, to actually go forth and live as a monastic was a very powerful way of focusing one's life force energy towards awakening. And also because I could see that even though I had a boyfriend and a good job and a family that I loved, I knew none of that was something that I could hold on to. You know, that, that all of that was going to be something that eventually I would have to part from. And so there was a deep kind of a sense of that I was really looking for something that was reliable because I had a real deep sense of how fragile life was and how easily it shifted and how quickly things changed and how impermanent things were. So the kind of reality of the truth of impermanence for me was really strong, even from the beginning. So the urgency or the sense of the, the value of you know, diving in deep and being willing to let go of having intimate relationships or family or to me had a value because there was a sense of opening up to a joy that I could relax into. 
you know, that I could trust, that would be there with me even though circumstances might change or would definitely change, you know. And there was something in me that was really, I felt, well, if I wanted to give my life to awakening, that felt like a good way of doing it. So that first year at college at UC Santa Cruz, I remember there were a number of really powerful things that happened. And one of them was is, is that one of the college students, one of my colleagues, picked up a hitchhiker. And she ended up being killed. And I remember thinking, you know, it was, t- it was a winter time in Santa Cruz when it kind of deluges with rain. And, and I thought, you know, if I was driving the car, I would have done exactly the same thing. I would have picked up that person. And so, you know, for me, the sense of, you know, you just never know. You never know what's around the corner. And then, and then what happened in India was also a close encounter with death that was another kind of quickening of my motivation. And then meeting Deepama, who was this realized being who I'd heard about in that class with Jack, was like a window into the kind of peacefulness and spaciousness of what can happen when you really understand what happens when everything lets go. You know, who are you when you're not holding on to anything? You know? And meeting Deepama again was this tremendously powerful experience. But for you, you know, you also have been a, had a life of commitment to the Dhamma and a close encounter. Where is it, what has motivated you to be in contact with the Dhamma? And how is it that your considering monastic life has woven into your life? And where are the edges with that? Well, I was reflecting as you were kind of talking about that, that the, the class experience. Um, I mean, really I was court-ordered to meditate. <laughs> when I was 16, I was um, sent to a psychologist. Uh, is he here? His name is Budri Das, and he's uh, a very old and dear friend at this point. And he um, is very involved in Mount Madonna. And um, so I had a bit of an anger problem at the time. It wasn't really a problem for me, but it was a problem for many people. <laughs> and, it was a, and it was a problem... Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, it was a, but it, society was reflecting back to me that my actions and behavior was not helpful. And uh, so I was sent to see Budri, and, um, and after a few sessions, he said, you know, I have this, uh, this meditation technique that I think might be really helpful for you. Are you willing to give it a try? And I thought, yeah, okay. You know, I'm willing to give it a try. And so he just guided me in, a, in that very simple kind of uh, awareness of breath. Um, and it it was helpful, and that was really uh, the beginning. I mean, I could even go back further and say, like, when I was seven, eight, nine years old, to escape from the pain in my home, I would go off into the forest and find peace and ease. So, I mean, I can even say that that far back, but I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I was finding peace and ease and stillness. And then when I was maybe 16, 17, I was uh, introduced to a more of a kind of formal practice, but not Buddhist at all. There was no Buddhism. You know. And um, 
matter of fact, he was getting very Hindu at the time, which is, you know, it's all labels, really. So then, a martial arts practice. Um, I started, uh, I was involved in the, the Zen practice, uh, Soto Zen, around 1819, and also, you know, me and uh, Noah, Noah Levine, uh, spent some time in juvenile hall, <laughs> various points in our lives, and we were both uh, kind of interested in the same thing at the same time, um, but different different ways of getting there, and we reconnected in our kind of early 20s and started to meditate together, actually. There was a small group of us. But I think my interest, so that was my interest in practice, which way before I knew anything about the Buddha, I mean, I thought he was, you know, it was the Chinese Buddha that you see, the, you know, the kind of happy Buddha, you know, I was, that's the only Buddha I knew of, you know. Um, Chinese restaurant Buddha. <laughs> and, uh, and so I wasn't particularly looking for Buddhism. I was looking for peace and ease and found that through meditation practice, um, mindfulness. And then I was in, at Cabrillo College and I took a non-Western philosophy class. Claudia Close, I think was her name. And, and it was a kind of a broad spectrum. And I had read a little bit. I read Siddhartha and by, you know, Herman Hass and a few other books and was somewhat interested in the idea but very reluctant uh, I'm a reluctant Buddhist <laughs> and um, why were you reluctant? well because I'm reluctant because uh, I'm reluctant period you know? <laughs> but, but I was reluctant because um, of actually the, some of the early interactions that I had um, with what seemed like spiritual people uh, growing up here in Santa Cruz and um, kind of Rajneesh people and uh, just kind of what seemed like cult-ish type religion, uh, dogmatic kind of ideas I wasn't interested in. And I just lumped everything that was religion into that category without exploration. And I was raised... uh, you know, with kind of a Christian background and as this kind of overseer God, and I, you know, rejected that pretty early. So that's why I was reluctant. Because so anything that had to do with religion, I was reluctant to. So. Hesitant. But the the truth seeking aspect and the kind of peace and ease that can come from um, from Buddhism. And actually, so in that class, um, I heard a story that was the story of uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment where he was uh, being urged to teach, and whether he was urging himself in his kind of higher mind or there was this you know, deva that was kind of urging him to teach or whatever story you want to believe about it. He, there was this uh, vision of um, the Buddha looking over to a pond and seeing the lotus blossom and saying uh, the, the, the teaching that I have remembered is that we, we all have this seed of an awakening, of truth, of freedom, and that just as the lotus blossoms, you know, depending on the causes and conditions, you know, we start off in the mud and the muck and the dark waters and coming up. And some will uh, not, you know, uh, break, break the surface of the water, and some will. And um, and that was really inspiring to me. There was something about I'm just paraphrasing the story now, but 
there was something really inspiring to me about the idea that we all have the seed of awakening within us. And um, it's also why I like your title, Awakening Truth. Because that's what it all means to me. is awakening truth within us. And so that class, and then sitting more, and then understanding a little bit more about Buddhism. and Yeah, I don't know. It's just been a kind of a whirlwind. So for you in your own journey of exploring the possibility of being a monastic or staying in lay life, mm-hmm. you know, where have the edges of that been for you? Why, why, why do you feel more comfortable with your choice than another choice? How come you haven't fallen for the A-team? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I don't necessarily... Huh. Well, there's been two. There's a there, like we talked about this a little earlier. This is a trick. She's tricking. <laughs> <laughs> because that same question, Venerable Karuna Dhamma, when I was at um, at Ajahn Chah's monastery yeah, for Westerners in Thailand, uh, asked me the very same question. What? What? First, what? Drew, what drew me to Thailand? What drew me to Wat Pananacha, uh, was this kind of seeking. Like, what what is that like? What is it like to live in a monastery? And I've had a, I've had a few of those experiences. So I've tried it on a little bit, sitting long retreats and going to monasteries. And ultimately, I feel that um, the awakening uh, to my own kind of a deeper awareness or awakening to the truth of the Dhamma, I actually feel like um, like I'm, I'm doing just fine as far as uh, no need to, to take on uh, a special role other than the one that I have. This is the way I, I guess I'm kind of coming to it now. But I went uh, to Wat Pananacha and, you know, I was saying earlier, you know, took the ten precepts and uh, was kind of ordained as a Pakao or a, a Anagarika. Shaved my eyebrows and you know did the whole thing, and uh, and there was a there was a real longing while I was there to to leave, and uh, the longing was really feeling. I mean, some it's some it's attachment to life, you know, to desire, to connection, to the things that you uh, even as you were just speaking a few minutes ago about. Um, um, Seeing the impermanent nature of family and you know uh, relationship and this type of thing, for me, um, I spent so long in my life avoiding connection in that way uh, as a defense mechanism that this practice has really helped to kind of soften those edges. And so it felt like it could have been, and I was uh, just recovering from a breakup when I went to Thailand. So. Um, there was a uh, a little bit of like this is an escape, and I I felt like it wasn't the right time. It was a rebound relationship. It was like a yeah, like I was in a rebound relationship with monasticism. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I so I chose not to. Yeah. At that time. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of worth. I mean, my own experiences is that the monastery is just a magnifying lens for everything that's going on. You know, so when I when I was uh, you know 17, there were all kinds of questions about relationship and sexuality and family and you know living and all the rest of that. And then eventually, I ended up in the monastery, 
And in the monastery, surprise, 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 then there's questions about family and relationship and sexuality and how I'm living and the work I'm doing. But it was in the context of living as a nun. So it wasn't that the questions changed or my life experience, what my... That my internal material was present in whatever circumstances I was in. It's just that the way I was relating to it was framed in a different context. So as a nun, obviously, I've got certain boundaries that as a layperson I didn't have. Okay, and so and and then because of that, there's a there's a an in-your-face quality with some of this material because you can't just leave or you can't just get on a bus and go somewhere else or you can't just open the refrigerator and help yourself when you're hungry, you know. But the material itself is not so radically different. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm very interested in is using monastic life as a way of uh, a, a, a fully embodied, in, integrative experience as a human being. And that's part of the reason why the vision of awakening truth for me really speaks to me. Because it's not only a vision about creating a training monastery for monks or nuns, but to create a new model where what is supported is awakening for everybody at whatever precept level that they're actually finding themselves at. And these things also change. And so, you know, people come into a monastery, they leave a monastery, they have families, the kids grow up, they come to the monastery, are part of children's programs, they can ordain for a while, whatever. But the door is open and people are welcome. And the sense is is, is that everybody has a place there. But in our Western society, particularly in, in the United States, mostly what everything is is lay. If there's a lay scene and lay teachers and lay centers and lay everything... And we are the extraterrestrial weirdos, you know. We're, we're the, like, absolutely odd one out. We're the ones who are, you know, people don't know who we are or what we're doing or what our lifestyle is or, or have any sense of the, why there's any value in living like this. It just seems, it seems so against the normal way of, you know, to have what you want, to be able to get what you want, to be able to do what you want, that why on earth would anyone put yourself in a position where those basic things are dependent on other people to help you with? And, you know, for myself, it's been a fascinating process coming into the United States after being in England where these basic things were taken care of. Because it's, it's required me really looking at what does it mean to be a nun. And part of that has required me attending to my own identification and attending to my own attachment with what it is to be a nun. That that's who I am. And, you know, I'm grateful for the training that I've had. But part of the training has required a, an enormous capacity to be groundless and to not know, and to be willing to let go of who I think I am, and to allow this uncertainty to emerge, to inform, well, what is it now that actually makes sense and is relevant? And it has been both excruciating and incredibly liberating. It's like an incredible koan to have ground and to be groundless in the same moment. And to me, the path as a nun, especially in the United States at this time with the way the bhikkhuni situation is, requires that. 
ground and groundlessness because it's so new and there's so little kind of um, infrastructure, support systems or kind of people having a clue what it is or, you know, or any value in it. But it's just really um, piece by piece as to how this thing is all unfolding. But what I found, you know, is is that the practice, which is the practice that we were just doing in the beginning of standing or breathing or attending to the present and allowing our idea of things to end and bringing us just back in contact with the immediacy of what is actually happening, to me, this has been the richness of what is possible in order to sit in this place of feeling the ground, and allowing this incredible groundlessness of not knowing. You know, I don't know what the future holds in store. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what kind of shape it's going to take or the kind of, the, the, like, I, I cannot predetermine the values that I will have. And yet there's something in that which is so immediate and so awake and so alive and so allowing of connection and intimacy and integration and wholeness and the tenderness of grief and the reality of loss, everything that I've had to navigate, that to me it feels it feels right, you know. I guess my uh, my thought about that and my response that came up internally is that um, for me, uh, whether lay life or Monastic, those places are, are the same. Those kind of groundless and grounded. Like how do you how do you allow? Yet there's a little more choice that I that maybe I that I'm choosing. I'm choosing more. Yeah, more freedom of choice versus uh, kind of the choiceless freedom. So for me, I think the big renunciation is not letting go of my hair. It's letting go of the sense of I am. You know, that's the big one. And, and you know, in this kind of a context, the thing that really gets um, emphasized is I put myself in a position where I am dependent on people for my basic needs. And as a layperson, we do everything in our power not to go there. We do everything in our power to make sure that we have what we need in order to take care of our basic needs. And so it's, it's a phenomenal reversal of our cultural kind of um, tendencies, and it puts me right back into the present moment of, you know, where is contentment, and what is my responsibility in terms of how I'm relating to what's arising? But I don't think that there is an A team and a C team or a B team. I think the A team is the team that you're on. That's the best place for you to practice. And so I said that to you in order to elicit a kind of uh, a kind of unconscious um, agenda that sometimes happens with people when they are in the presence of monastics. Is is that they they feel that there's a, you know a preference in the way of practicing. I sensed the trick. I just didn't know exactly where it was going. Questions? So yeah, we have, we have a question about. Yeah, I, I do have a question because it seems like a lot of people who um, pursue a spiritual path, and particularly the monastic path, they feel a calling. 
that doesn't it doesn't even occur to most of us, mm-hmm. and that that there's a real very real difference. There, there, there's almost that's the key is that you have a, a calling that most of us don't experience. So. You know, there's a million different ways that people get into a monastery. And sometimes people feel a calling, and sometimes people just come in contact with monastics, and there's something about that that rubs off on them in a way where there's a possibility of, a, of something new that they hadn't experienced before. And so it's not like, you know, everyone has their own individual story. And some people, they have this sense of a calling, and for some people, it doesn't. It's not like that. You know, we were laughing earlier. Ajahn Amaro's was the co-abbot of Abayagiri for many years. He just left earlier to go back to England to be the abbot there. You know, he went to the monastery because it was free rent and food. He was taking a break from being a pothead and you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll on the beach in Kopangan. You know, he needed a holiday from that. So he went to the monastery because they didn't charge any money. You know. So, so that was his entrance. You know, that was that was how he actually got to the monastery. And then once he was there, he was exposed to dhamma and to teachings and to people living in a particular way that had an impact on him. But he absolutely didn't have a calling when he walked through the gates. You know, he fell into it as much as anybody can fall into it. You know, so everyone's got a different story. Yeah. I mean, I would just add disagree slightly and say that I feel like we all have a calling and it's just what that calling is or how we kind of recognize it and how we manifest it you know how we can feed or grow that calling whether it's to come I mean what brought you here you know we all have uh, what brought you to your first meditation retreat there's always a calling there's a departure it's a it's an archetypal story that we all have to you know, by seeing the suffering within our own hearts, our own minds, the world, and then seeing some glimmer, you know, like for me, um, seeing the cycle of continuing to be locked up and suffering around drugs and addiction, and then seeing some glimmer of hope. But it was, but for me, it wasn't to become a full monastic. That actually wasn't even something that entered my mind until many years later. So I feel like there is a calling. It's just not necessarily to take robes, but we all have some calling. Otherwise, why would we be here? We'd be interested in sitting and t- watching two people discuss Dharma. Please. Yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm finding the, some of the teachings of the Dalai Lama in mind. He says, my religion is kindness. I guess I could translate it as calling. Mm-hmm is that kind of compassion mm-hmm. and kindness. He finds it a particular way. Yeah. But I think part of what he's saying is that he values all the different ways, whether it's you working with inmates in jail, or you know, you're doing that teaching, Kurt, or you know the work that I know many people in this room do to make, in a sense, their calling, their religion. And in fact, that for me was what was most compelling about Jack as a teacher. Yeah. Was this is that even though he was brilliant and exceptionally articulate, it was his compassion that to me, I was like, you know, if there was anything that I wanted to really focus on, it was to live my life in a way where that was actually 
um, the priority of my life. And I, and I think about you know um, the stories about the Buddha's choice to go out and teach. And I guess I've always projected all kinds of things for myself on that, but how tempting it must have been to just say, whoa, I'm awakened. You know, I don't got to go mess with all this stuff and mm-hmm. get involved in the middle of it all. And yet, you know, that calling to teach mm-hmm. was to go back and get in the middle of it all again. So. Out of compassion. Yeah. 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 And just to kind of add to that, that's a little bit of what I feel like happened for me at Wapananacha. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was, there was actually, I, I attempted it numerous times. I went to a Zen monastery for a while, and it was a little too rigid for me, and I went to this monastery for a while, and it was a little too, you know, so, uh, a little too hot, a little too cold. I was just going to say, it sounds like a fairy tale, I know. Yeah. So this kind of, you know, uh, how do we engage in, in, in life? You know, and I like, to go, I like to go to punk rock shows, and, you know, ride my motorcycle around, and, you know, there's things I like. That I um, enjoy. But I guess, you know, Jason, I think for me that's part of what compels me into the sense of wanting to create a Dhamma village. Mm-hmm. Is, is that I don't think, I have never had the feeling that everybody should be monastic. In fact, you know, I remember one year there were ten women who came to me and asked me about ordaining. Mm-hmm. And like six of them I said, don't even consider it. And, you know, one of them I said, you know, why don't you do some really intensive therapy? And then, I think two of them, I said, well, why don't you try contacting the monastery and exploring it further? So it's never a one-size-fit-all that if everyone just ordained, then everything would be fine kind of a scenario. But I do really feel that what is enriching is when people who are committed to awakening are somehow sharing that together, or whether there's a way in which people can support each other in ways that are respectful and supportive and empowering, no matter where you are and no matter what commitments you've made, no matter what your precept levels are. So the Dhamma village for me is that, where it's not just a place for monastics, where, you know, people can come and, and offer your food and your time, but, you know, it's not for you. It's the opposite, a place that actually works for everybody. You know, where people can are allowed to go through what we go through in life, of being born and, and growing up and getting sick and dying. And that is actually something that would be welcome in a place like that. It's not something you have to go to a separate place in order for those things to happen, you know. Because that is, that is what we experience as human beings, you know. And so for me, that is the sense of what I would, I would love. I would love to create a space where that was possible. And where also the monastics were supported in their life as monastics, you know. Yes. What well, comes to mind for me is uh, I want to thank you for modeling fearlessness. No, so I feel like so much of what you mentioned as our need for developing a a lot of security for ourselves, a lot of protection for ourselves in our life, even though we often have the sense that there's a certain futility about that, that it's so difficult to have the experience of being able to live without fear and to be supported in that way of being that you're offering through your vision of this village. That at those times in our life when really we, we feel that what we have built up around ourselves is the 
not sustain ourselves in having held that, but there would be a place where we could let go of that and give full support. That seems like a really beautiful thing. Well, you know, I have to say that my journey towards fearlessness has absolutely been through fear. You know, and, you know, I've had an, an, an enormous amount of fear that I've had to navigate in, in, in virtually every step of the journey. But for me, what's happening more and more is, is that I'm not so frightened by fear. So fear comes and I know it and I know how to meet it and embrace it. And I don't shrink back and contract back and expect or hope or wish or fantasize how it would not be there. And so to me that that and that has allowed and enabled me to continue to move forward with a level of vulnerability that sometimes is excruciating, you know. But what's fascinating to me and continues to be fascinating to me is, is, is that I can reframe the same exact thing in a slightly different way and all of a sudden it looks totally different. And so what to me was terrifying and totally unsupported and looked like it was not going to be possible to sustain, I look at it from another perspective and the actual circumstances have not changed one bit and I feel totally different about the whole thing. It feels supportive. It feels perfect. It feels like it allows me to do exactly what I need to do. It's encouraging. It's empowering. And nothing in the actual circumstances changed at all. And so part of what I have gotten confidence in is the ability to let go of my story of what it is that I'm making out of whatever it is that's happening and keep coming back to the uncertainty of not knowing anything about what's going on and I'll let myself feel what's emerging from the belly out because that is more informative and more accurate than the ideas that I have of shaping it and forming it. We, we have some experience of that within our center because we've had very spirited discussions about whether we could survive supported purely on non. And, and sometimes those discussions, have, they have been very heated. And um, the decision was made that, that that was the path we were taking. And, um, and we've been able to do that, and we've been supported by the community. Sometimes it's been difficult. The difference that it's made in how the community forms itself together is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also I hear in what you're saying when you, when you, I loved your phrase not frightened by fear it's also like we're not not confused by our confusion living in that state of uncertainty right. is something that we say ah there you are uncertainty right yeah. so there's lots of times when I feel like I've closed one door I know I can't go there anymore but the other door hasn't opened up yet and so I'm hitting in this kind of limbo bardo realm of yeah, 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 but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And then I have to just relax into wanting it to be different. I have a Quaker colleague who yeah. talks about having one time had a very difficult decision to make and going to an, an older, sort of wise Quaker colleague. And, and the Quaker expression is way opening, is the way to describe knowing where you need to go and and he was asking her, "Do you have, tell me about your experiences of way opening. She said, I've never had that happen, but I've sure had it close. It slammed me right on the ass. And, and she said, and that's taught me just as much as this magic notion of seeing exactly the path I belong in. Right. 
Yeah, there's a lovely story. I think it was Richard Bach, and I don't know whether it's uh, the Jonathan Livingston Siegel or another one, where he's talking about this worm that's clinging to the rock. And everyone says, don't let go, don't let go. If you let go, you'll be smashed to the rocks. And he thinks, well, you know, there's this river that's flowing. Certainly there's got to be a way of trusting the flow. So he decides to let go, and the first thing that happens is that he's smashed to the rocks. And I love that part of the story because we have this idea that, you know, when we engage in some kind of a spiritual practice, we're going to be lifted in, in, a, in a silken pink pillow and carried from one step to the next. And never shall our feet touch the dust. And it just ain't the way it is, you know. We're constantly confronting our edges and our terror and our fear and people's nastiness. But sometimes in the midst of all of that, when we let go of our own desperate longing for things to be otherwise, really, and just touch the, the tenderness and the humility and the vulnerability of what's emerging in the present moment, the river of conscious awareness does flow, and it is something we can learn to relax into and trust it. Even when there are rocks, you know, even when there are things that are so uncertain we cannot possibly know, even are the things that scare the living daylights out of us, we can still learn to trust the kind of the uncertainty of, of the flow of pure presence, of awareness, of consciousness, of life force, of breath, and let it do what it does. Even, even when we know that our breath eventually too will end. So I think, you know, one of the things that I found so compelling was this real deep longing to wake up. And I know, you know, monastics don't have a monopoly on waking up. And neither do Buddhists. You know, this is not a Buddhist trip. This is an awakening trip. And, you know, there's all kinds of people who in all kinds of different ways have the same appreciation, you know. Awareness is, nobody's got a monopoly on awareness. Or truth. Or truth. Or letting go. Or kindness. You know? And so for me, you know, what you're talking about is the Buddhist teachings and not wanting to be interested in the dogma. You know, I think one of the reasons why I so love the punks is because it's a bullet-free zone. You know? It's a group of people who are not interested in, in a defined idea about how it's supposed to be. And there is an aliveness and a vitality that's present. But even still, you know, I was I was laughing because within being a Dharma punk, there can be a tremendous identification and attachment yes. to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and actually, that's we had this discussion earlier and, um, around uh, your identification with being a nun or being a fully ordained bhikkhuni and my identification with being a dharma punk or uh, a dharma teacher or, you know, having tattoos or, you know, just whatever the identifications uh, that are the labels that we can kind of put that actually, for me, when I can recognize it uh, and recognize the suffering, actually, it's usually when I recognize the suffering that's being caused because of the clinging to identity or to the the idea of, of a thing than that falling away, that, you know, that kind of groundlessness. So, Jason, you've got tattoos, and you are a Dharma teacher, and you are a Dharma punk. 
How can you do all of that and not be attached? Well, because, because that's not all that I am. There's no any one thing for me, you know. And like, how do you recognize when you're attached? What is the hallmark of, of, of identification? Well, for me, it usually has to do with uh, feeling some kind of uh, a strong opinion about the other, whatever the other is, um, and some kind of, and usually, usually aversion, some kind of tightness, aversion. I can feel, oh, okay, there's, there's, I have a really strong opinion, and this opinion really matters. And then if I can soften to what really matters about this opinion, and sometimes they do, and sometimes it's not a cause of suffering, mm-hmm. but when I when I really can look within that, I see that there's a grasping to and that's some kind of meanness around it, mm-hmm. an identity that is important to sustain. So one of the things that I love most, most about being a nun, ironically enough, is when I use my robes to be absolutely naked. You know, I use the form and the structure and the container of being a nun to be utterly transparent and to not have any fixed position about who I am or how it is that I'm relating to another person. Because when that's happening, there's a kind of spontaneity and immediacy that I trust, that I value, that actually speaks to my heart, that actually is in resonance with my, with my deepest values. And so for me, uh, just c- continually reflecting back on the precepts, uh, the five precepts, the lay precepts, and seeing, using that as a, a sounding board of my own kind of where am I feeling attached, and then recognizing, you know, how can I kind of soften into the this way that this way of living, this way of kind of uh, being in the world that is ultimately good, you know, that there's just goodness there, and whether that's, you know, so it's not the robe per se or the tattoos per se, but the kind of inner commitment to living as closely to the. Uh, teachings of the Buddha as possible uh, for me mm-hmm. as a lay person. And then also knowing that uh, we all will make mistakes and you know there as I, as I get caught or you know strong in an opinion that then causes suffering or am unwise with speech, then I can also soften to that and recognize that we're all just trying to muddle through the best we can. You had a, a question or well, I was thinking of reversing the question we had for Nathan, if I may. How can you not be attached to being a nun and being recognized as, as an alien, as somebody not a lay person? Does that attachment come to you, of being separate and different than the rest of us? Well, that's been a, a topic for the last couple of years, a very intense one. And what I've had to do is I've had to actually look at my own identification and attachment with being a nun. And so when I use being a nun and wearing robes and living in a different way in any kind of way to separate myself out from, then I have to watch what I'm doing and see the consequences of that. But when I'm using the nun life in order to actually enter fully into the present moment and to let go of identification with anything, then the robes are not wearing me. You know, I'm actually wearing them and wearing them very lightly, you know. 
So I'm then not using the lifestyle in order to separate, but in order to connect. Now, the container that I have is a container which has got a lot of definitions in it in terms of what's okay and what's not okay. And I know the fundamental principles well enough to know, you know, what are the edges that I've got room to negotiate and what are the edges that are not negotiable, you know. So in terms of like what Jason was just saying about understanding the precepts as a clear container, I've been a nun now long enough that I understand the, the container, yeah? But when I understand the container, it's like I... It's like, you know, when you've been dancing for a long time, you don't need to worry about the steps, you know. There's just a sense of then learning how to trust the flow, what that means. And so for me, the nun situation right now is trusting the flow and letting the flow come from this unknown place rather than from this idea place of all the constructs of what I have constructed about what it is to be a nun and see what emerges from that. And when I'm doing that, my experience is not of separation. My experience, my direct felt sense experiences is that all pervasive awareness is everywhere, in everything, at all times, and is not separated in time and space. And I'm part of that flow. There's no way that I can separate myself out and say I'm a distinct, unique element of that. I am part of a flow that it connects everything. And it's not only connecting human beings, it's connecting animals and plants and rocks and water and air and earth. And so when I can let my attention rest into the earth in the way that we were doing in the beginning, I feel awareness is, it's not just imagination. It's my attention is there because awareness is already there. I'm connecting to a huge field of awareness of which I am a manifestation of. I'm not directing. I am I am part of that. And to me, that is like, you know, that is, there's such incredible sense of ease and intimacy and connection and wholesomeness and aliveness and tenderness. It's all there. But as soon as the self arises and contracts around any of that, as I am this, then I pull myself out from that flow and then there's a lump, and that lump has a, a, has something that has to navigate in order to get back into flow. So when I was talking about you know the sense of being naked, it wasn't that I hold up the idea of the container and then use it in order to make myself transparent. It's I let go of the idea, I become completely transparent, and in that I live as a nun. It's very freeing, and it's... It astonishes me what happens doing that because the kind of immediacy of contacts and the kind of stuff that happens all the time is just mind-blowing, you know. So, interested in how there is kind of the non-monastic and the monastic and it seems like there's in some ways a a big gap in between and at times I think I'd like to be like semi-monastic and just, you know, to like... What would be the value of guidelines of just living more simply and living a little more in that direction? Um, you know, rather than thinking, oh, good, new leaf is over there and it's huge and I can get, you know, whatever kind of food I want. So I, I just wonder if you, any thoughts on that and, like, is there more bringing them closer and more ways to move in that direction? 
Well, I'd be interested to know what the rest of you think about that. You know, how would you input into this? What is your sense of that? What ideas have you had about this? Well, if I may, before I a conversation, you were just having recently about the attachments. The Dhamma, the Dhamma, which uh, not so much about our place, though I understand from the message as we necessarily have the infrastructure. But I think it's that acceptance that we all have fears, we all have attachments. It's only our reactions to those fears. If you met the I'm not frightened, my fears are not mm-hmm. and, and I think that some of the ones, I'm not disturbed by my attachment to attachments, which are like enemies. The dentist is a dentist for a while, they're, they're not for a while. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in this body for a while. And, and I think the Dhamma village is. The acceptance of everyone has some attachments, everyone has fears, and everyone is moving through it on their own path. Right. And to me, that washes away religions, monasticism, money, all the distinctions, because all distinctions are in the personal choice. And other than that, of course, I don't know what they can do. It's lasting, substantial. So just to kind of add, I feel like in the Western Vipassana tradition, we have actually begun to kind of really work with that in developing meditation centers where people can go, which are like monasteries. People can go for a period of time and live very simply and really experience, and and in some ways actually even in more depth. It's kind of like range retreat all the time, you know, for a period of time. So I feel like those conditions uh, can be... uh, Touched, and we can begin. That's been my experience, both um, you know, staying in, in monasteries for times and kind of seeing how life is there, and then also going on you know uh, several or, or different you know, levels of retreat as far as like longer retreats go, and um, kind of seeing the depth of practice and allowing the simplicity to take place, so that all these uh, constructs fall away. And um, and then, but I but the criticism that I have a little bit, or not the criticism, but the the um, difficulty that I have had, and that I think uh, uh, I actually value in the monastic world, and what you're kind of saying with your interaction uh, is that when you go to those kind of places, and then you just try to, and then you come back to back to the world, back to society, and it can be very uh, challenging, as it has been for me. So um, the kind of interplay uh, between the two worlds, you know, I think um, can be very helpful. And one of the ways that I've uh, worked with in my own life is to like, like Sundays, like pick a day a week where you don't talk on the phone, where you uh, commit to uh, a day of sitting and walking or coming to like we have day longs here, you know, like. So doing the best that you can to engage with the practice on a deeper level or the commitment on a deeper level um, while still engaging in the world. But this, I th- this is my kind of thought about it. My sense also, if I can add in, is, is, is that you know part of what was fascinating to me about living in a monastery for so many years is that it actually is not focused around meditation. You know, a monastery is a lifestyle. And there are all kinds of people who come who have no interest in meditating, and yet they have a place in the monastery. But the monastery is built on principles of simplicity and renunciation and service and generosity. You know, and it's like, you know, this is what I wear. You know, I, I, this, is, this is it. It's not like I've got, you know, 
20 pairs of shoes at home that I try on, or the, you know, I've got blue, red, green, and purple that I can experiment with when, I've, when it's my mood or I feel like that's an expression of me. You know, this is it. This is all I've got. And so, you know, what I heard you asking was not so much about the meditation practice, but how do you create a lifestyle that overlaps in your own home that begins to give you a feeling for something that works more with a monastic situation. And and I would say, look at the stuff. Look at the clothes and the toys and the and the and the the number of ways in which we distract ourselves. Look at the how much time we are dealing with electronic equipment and forms of communication. Look at the look at the the games we're playing in order to move our attention away from the present moment. Look at how many times we go shopping as a form of therapy. Look at the way we're relating to food in order to satisfy our emotional needs. Look at the actual stuff of our lives and begin to start relating to food in order to nourish our bodies and clothes to cover our bodies and a house, not as a personality statement, but as a, as a structure that is enough safety and privacy so that we can rest and eat and sleep and, and, and do all the things that we do, you know? But to come back to the fundamental principles of what is this stuff for and, and, and begin to start relating to it like that and then think, okay, if I'm relating to clothes as, as something that covers my body, how many pairs of shirts do I need? How many shoes do I need? How many hats, how many scarves do I need? How many times do I need to go shopping every year? So that we start looking at stuff in a new way, it becomes much more functional rather than an expression of our personality or our need to establish ourselves in a power position in our society. You know, And then as we start doing that as a kind of sustained practice, then our overhead can lessen. And when the overhead lessens, then there might be less need to spend so much time working. And when there's less time working, we have more time to give, to practice, to meditate, and to talk with people. So that would be my suggestion of how do we start bridging these things so that there's less of a a monastery world and then the chaos of the daily life. In addition to Jason's talking about how do we actually let our practice be something that has more energy in it and more priority. But, you know, when you're sick, when your brains are scrambled, when you've got fog, it's really hard to do Vipassana meditation in the way that we're used to doing it. And so it's really helpful to have devotional practices and ways of making shrines, ways of preparing a meal and giving it to somebody, ways of bowing, either metaphorically or physically, that we know that when we're not physically or mentally able to do contemplative practices in the way that we're used to, we still are tethered into something that makes total sense. You know... I felt I had a really ship-sharp practice, and then I got chronic fatigue for 17 years. And, you know, when I was sick like that, there was times when, you know, I, you know, forget the breath. It was like, can I just get a feeling of where my body was? But I could always chant, and I could always bow. You know, and in a Vipassana scene, we don't bow, and we don't chant. You know, so a whole huge part of a culture is kind of X'd out because it's considered culturally inappropriate. Well, I would say, let's re-examine that. 
and see if there's a way in our hearts we can open up to this that actually feels, not that somebody's ramming something down your throat or that you're in line with it as a kind of road march to Nibbana, but in a, as a way of opening up in, in a whole new way of being that actually makes sense. What does that look like? What does it make sense to chant in language or in tunes or in tones that we can connect with? How does that feel? You know? I want to make a comment, uh, and it, it comes from, I think this gentleman said, you know, this is an organization that thrives off of jhana, and what that means is making offerings, and um, I think one of the most profound things is to make offerings to everybody around you, and to see, um, to see everything as a teaching, and to pay into and invest in the very world that we live in. There are people suffering everywhere. There's homelessness everywhere. And this kind of bridges that gap of, like, you know, the monastic magnifying glass that you brought up. And yet this is such, um, the chaos is its own magnificence, is its own platform to, to preach and to practice and to make offerings and to see the teachings in the Lotus Blossom, and to see the teachings in a punk rocker, and the motorcycle driver, and, you know, and the tattoos, and all those wonderful things. So yes, we have choices, and yes, we have New Leaf, and Costco, and all these, like, amazing things. And we also have a tremendous sense of responsibility to ourselves, to bring teachings out of those things and be in those things as well. Beautifully said. Please. Uh, thank you. Um, so I'm really getting so much out of this talk, so thank you so much both of you um, and everyone who's spoken. Um, we were speaking earlier about, you know, questions about uh, how we shop and about um, things that we have in our life. When, when I engage with those questions in my life, it's often in a social justice context. Um, I'm trying to be aware of the impacts of the things I buy or the choices I make on, you know, people who you know, grow with food, you know, friends of mine who live in labor camps as cleanest, or um, who have toxic water in our area from um, things that are often around um, a system where I'm often the beneficiary of that, where um, you know there's so much in American life about making things easy for the consumer, and um, there's a lot of suffering attached to that. And um, you were talking so much of what you were talking about was from such a, um, a a place of personal benefit, and and I, it was it was a different way of thinking about it for me. So it was really powerful. But I, I maybe want to ask how. <coughs> I mean, one of the things as a nun is, is that the stuff that I have is the stuff that's given to me. And so the point that you're making is an incredibly important point, but it's not one that I can actually exercise in terms of the stuff that I have, because the stuff that I get is the stuff that's given. So I, it's, you know, I can speak about it in general terms, but I can't actually ask people to get different stuff. You know, so that so that you know, as a nun, it's one of the 
few people, you know, lifestyles that actually is not able to engage in stuff in terms of social justice. But it's a really important point is, is that, you know, it's not only about, it's also the impact of how this actually influences all the other people that are involved in it, you know. And, you know, and the choices of what things we buy and what are the consequences of, of, of how all of that adds up, you know. Brilliant and very important, you know. But that would also be how, how do you all respond to that? How do you all respond to knowing the, the amount of information that you do about the things that you know, like in terms of what kind of meat you buy or whether you buy organic produce or not or you know whether you support local farmers or not? How does that impact your choices in the kinds of decisions you make and the way you live your life? Because all of those decisions are going to have an, an impact on a much greater sphere than just yourself. Please. Well, it, it seems I love those four qualities that Senator Brown mentioned earlier. So um, awareness, letting go, kindness. possible for us to sit around a table with a bunch of different people with different perspectives to come up with ways forward to address some of these global problems that individually none of us can actually resolve by ourselves. So even though we might not see the grandiose way it fits in, 
it for me, this is absolutely part of that bigger picture of what's needed in order to develop the skills to, to allow everyone's perspective and to find a way forward that has awareness and kindness and compassion and truth, truth, truth and generosity as its basis of the way how do we do how do we how do we work with some of the global issues that we're dealing with? They're absolutely too big for, you know, individuals or presidents or a few people to figure out. It's like we need to have everybody, representatives of everybody who's affected, sitting around and sorting out something that makes sense. Yeah, I, I just also think that I love and wanted to thank you so much for acknowledging that that comes in a variety of forms and traditions. I had just... Quickly, I had an experience of a real connection with someone who worked in a bureaucracy with me, but did it in a particular style that just seemed to be meaningful. So finally we made a connection. She said, come over to my house. Let's have brunch together. I went today. It turns out while she's doing her personnel work in the public sector, she's, a, she's coming from a contemplative Christian tradition in which she says, essentially, I pray all day long. I have two teenage children. I have a difficult job. You know, I have money worries and so on. She said, I pray my way through all of those with that awareness all day long. And I just was really struck and humbled to remember that I don't think that we in our practices have a lock on how people deal with the challenges of being a monk in the world. Mm-hmm. It was just a beautiful reminder. Beautiful. Yeah. So thank you. Mm-hmm. I think you also bring up a really remarkable point about your relationship to others, too, and um, how others around you um, challenge or push on your edges of who, who you might identify yourself with or who I identify myself with in terms of, you know, do I slip and buy the mystery meat today or do I get the new leaf, you know, that meat uh, you know, grass-fed, organic, something or other. So there is this kind of seduction, so to speak, with um, within ourselves as to what we prioritize. Yeah, and just being seduced by by other people that are maybe you know buying mystery meat and driving around in really fancy cars too, and you know something like that. But uh, I really enjoy Yogi Bhajan. He has this quote. It says, uh, make yourself so happy that others can't stare but look at you and be happy. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, coming back to that felt sense and that lived sense that, you know, the happiness and truth will speak through you mm-hmm. no matter what you do. So. And on that level, you know, what we all share in common is, is a tendency to attach to the idea I am. And the biggest renunciation that anyone can make, no matter what precept level you're living at, is to let go of that. You know, to solidify the sense of self as being somehow separate or identified with the ideas and the stories that we have and the history that we have and the orientation that we have and the political views that we have. You know, all of that. It's not as if those things have no relevance, but there is something a lot more than that. You know? There, there's more than robes, there's more than tattoos, there's more than baldness, there's more than gender, there's more than, you know, a mad thing that I've lived through, there's more than, 
There's more than all of that. And yet we have to actually touch it in order to move through it, you know. We have to feel the impact of that in order to find another way of being with it that we're not actually identified with it. Well, I think you're downplaying the importance of robes too much. It really all comes down to clothing. Just because it goes back, you just can't get them off. And you have your robes on. And both of those robes say outside. They both say to me, it's not about this. It's about something else. And that is important. That is really important. I mean, I think one of the reasons why the Buddha became the Buddha was because of the fourth heavenly messenger where he saw somebody in robes. And there was a possibility for him that there was a way out of, you know, something more than just birth, old age, sickness, and death. And it was symbolized by somebody wearing in robes. And so, you know, people ask me, why do you shave your head? And it's like, well, so that the point is so that we stick out like a sore thumb. You know, that is actually the point. And the point of doing that is so that people can know that there are our choices. And that one of the choices is that there's another way of living with all of this, you know, aside from the fact that it's pretty cheap to shave my head, you know, rather than $35 at a pop, you know. So you're, you're right, but I think with anything, there are two sides of the picture, and one side of the picture is to elevate the clothes that we wear and the statement that we make, and to use the form as a way of creating an identity, or to use the form to, as a finger pointing to where we're actually getting to. And that, to understand how all of this is a finger pointing to where we're getting to is exactly the point of why wearing robes is so powerful. Yeah. It's just like you're shining your light of the Dharma. You know, your own light. It's, it's kind of cool, the robes. You know, or your tattoos. It's your way of shining your own light. It's me. It's me. Mm-hmm. I don't know, robes, tattoos, you know, pink hair. It, it's... It's all just an expression, you know, and uh, we all, we make choices. But I think the Dharma is just bigger than all of that. And so, I mean, the, I mean, I, I, I often, and I didn't do it this evening or earlier, but you know, bow to the robes um, as the symbol, the the mendicant, you know, like the, the the fourth heavenly messenger, and and bow to the the the, the lineage. That the robe for me represents, you know, that the commitment that you've made represents, um, that allows the the Dharma wheel to continue, um, and the preservation. So each person that that takes it going forth, um, for you know all of the generations, continues that that kind of um, yeah that that the, the wheel of the Dharma kind of. Continuing forward, and then now, even in talking about, uh, you know, here in the West, and you know, lay, lay teachers, so there's a different, there's a different uh, robe or whatever, but it's really just a different expression, and so carrying it to a different group um, that may not see the fourth heavenly messenger, but right. yes. but, but I'm glad that they're out there. Right. And so for me, you know, the way forward that I see is really imperative, is, is that as the monastic culture takes root in this society, 
it does so in a way that completely empowers and supports the other manifestations of those who are carrying and upholding the Dharma wheel. And so in the past, it has been true that the monastics have been the torchbearers and the carriers of the, of, the, of the Dharma wheel. But in our contemporary society, the Dharma seed is shared by monastics and lay teachers. It's not that we have an exclusive seat with that. And so what I see as essential is to find a way of moving forward which is mutually respectful as well as appreciating the distinctness of what we are each offering. Not in a way that it, you know, it blends it all so that it's all turned into mush, but in a way where it's not. No one is elevated at, at, at somebody else's expense, you know. And to find a way that's both mutually respectful and mutually empowering, as well as understanding the the different ways that we can offer and serve. To me, that is the way forward, and I find that really juicy and exciting, you know. Well, would you? Uh, be willing to just maybe spend the next kind of few minutes or so, uh, or the next time we have, just talking about the fourfold sangha and how you kind of, invi- you know, really, because I feel like that piece has been missed, especially in our lineage, in the Theravada tradition. So, you know, the Buddha talked about the twofold sangha of monks and nuns and the fourfold assembly of monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen, but we are no longer in a binary culture of men and women. We are now in a world where there's all kinds of genders and all kinds of options and all kinds of precept levels. And so, you know, my sense is we need to move out of the fourfold assembly into the manyfold sangha, hmm. you know, where everybody at all precept levels is welcome, at all genders is level is welcome, at all orientations is welcome. And for me, what I see, you know, the Buddha was when he was alive was saying that he didn't feel that his dispensation was complete until the four assemblies were were, were present and operational, and each one had people within them that had clear depth of insight into the nature of the truth. And so in a many-fold assembly, we would have people of all genders, of all precept levels working together, all of whom who had clear insight into the nature of the truth and who were committed to living with that direct realization as something, as a way of supporting each other. So, you know, what I think is needed is is that we move out of the fourfold assembly into the many-fold sangha, and that the manifold sangha becomes the what we are working towards creating space where that can flourish. Now, in this society, there's very little contact with monastics and very little understanding of what's needed in order for them to live and to how they can be supported and all the rest of that. And part of my my life and my job is is to is to live and also to to be available to answer those questions. So. I take my alms bowl on alms round. When I was in Santa Rosa, I went on alms round in Santa, in Santa Rosa and Sebastopol and Windsor. And most of the time people see me and they have no idea what I'm doing. You know, they think I'm there begging for money. And then they come to offer me. So I'm not allowed to say this is an alms bowl unless somebody asks me, what are you doing? So even the culture around going on alms round is that we're not actually allowed to ask for anything until we're asked. But when people ask and they want to, they they're interested to know, and I can explain, then it's under the context like that where they have the opportunity to make an offering if they want to. 
And it's like, you know, my life. There are ways that people can support, even if you're not living in Colorado where I'm living. There are ways you can offer meals. There are ways that you can offer food. There are ways of supporting, even if you're here in Santa Cruz. And so what's needed is, is one, to know that and then to take the next step in investigating how and then to have interest in exploring further. Does that nourish your heart, you know? Or maybe for the, you know, inside Santa Cruz to do something for monastics, you know, a few times a year is just to say, well, we are part of all of this. How as a group would we make support to the monastics that are creating monasteries? How, what would that look like? Now, I know the sisters that are living in the Saranaloka and the Aloka uh, Vihar in San Francisco come. You know, they teach here. But that's the kind of thing that's needed is to say, is there a value in this? And how do we move forward? With how do we make it happen? What's necessary? What are the next steps? You know? And what I tell people is that I'm a visionary. And one of the short sides of a visionary is, is that it's really hard for me to break visions into practical steps of what's needed in order to get there. So I have a sense of what's needed in the larger picture, and I am waiting for the people to help bring the specific details of what we need to do in order to get there. See what happens. So I thank you for your beautiful, lovely. Thank you for your time and yes. your and your such warm welcome. Yeah. Mm, lovely. Very lovely. And we'll just do. Um,